0: Galatians, uh, chapter 2, and you'll find it on um, page 1169 in the Church Bibles if you want to look. Starting at verse 15 of chapter 2. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith.
1: We're working our way through the book of Galatians, and we've got to this passage that Cindy has uh, read to us this morning. Um, Galatia, or the Galatians, were part of what we know as modern-day Turkey. And um, if you want to catch up with any of our talks, they're all online, just go to our website, go to the download section, and you can pick up the story right from the beginning to where we are um, today. But let me very briefly recap the story. So Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and he starts his letter in the standard way, which is name of sender, tick, recipients, tick, Uh, greeting, tick. And then he departs from the standard format of a letter in those times. Because instead of um, then going on to some words of thanksgiving or blessing, what he says is this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now that statement, I think, must have come as quite a shock to his readers and his listeners, but Paul is expressing his own shock. He is astonished at what he is hearing. And what he is hearing is that some Jews from the mothership, if you like, the main church in Jerusalem, have, have gone up to Turkey, Galatia, and the message that they're sharing is that the gospel that Paul preached was not quite enough. That in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, they needed to adopt Jewish practices like Sabbath observance and circumcision and following certain dietary laws. So, in the opening two chapters, Paul argues for his gospel, this gospel that we've been reminded this morning, was revealed to him, not uh, a, a gospel that was made up. He says that alternative gospels are actually not good news at all. They aren't gospels. And he said in um, the verses leading up to the passage we we're looking at this morning that the gospel that he preach, preaches and has preached is the same gospel that the other apostles are preaching And that the only difference is that their focus has been on the Jews and that his focus, his calling, is on the Gentiles. But the one thing he hasn't done so far is actually say what the gospel is. He's mentioned the word 11 times, he's talked around it, but he hasn't Defined what the gospel is. He hasn't used any of the other words that, in uh, other letters, he often uses alongside the gospel. So words like justified and righteous and believe, and even the use of the word faith at the end of chapter one, isn't used in the normal gospel sense. So the question we should be asking ourselves, if we're kind of coming at this letter in a in a fresh way, is So what is this gospel that he keeps banging on about? What is it that he's so hot under the collar about? Why is it such a big thing that he says, you know, he would call down a curse on people who would preach another gospel? What is it that's so immense that he is willing to challenge publicly Peter, the Apostle Peter, of of all people, for not walking in line with the gospel. It must be something really significant. So we come to our section this morning, and if you, are still, if you still have your Bible in front of you, or if you don't, page 1160, we have the gospel in a nutshell, verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So there we have it. That is the gospel in a nutshell. No one will be justified by the works of the law but only by faith in Jesus Christ. Three times we're told not by the works of the law not by the works of the law, not by the works of the law. Three times we're told faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. And three times, justified. Justified. What does justified mean? Well, to borrow from J.I. Packer, um, very influential Christian author, of our times, to, justified is to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. That's what justified means. John Stott, another very influential uh, Christian leader of our times, the word is central to the message of the epistle, central to the gospel preached by Paul and indeed central to Christianity itself. Nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word. So let's just step back from that a minute. So Paul has been emphasizing something. Three times not this, three times this, three times this. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit has taken his highlighter pen and kind of gone over these particular words in Galatians, to bring them to our attention, there's something very, very significant here. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And it bubbles down to this word justified, which means to be declared innocent in the eyes of the law, not guilty, on the right side of the law. How does that happen? Not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you trust in works, if you trust in doing good deeds, if you trust in your own moral behaviour, you are doomed to failure because you cannot perfectly keep the law. Faith in Jesus Christ is our only hope. Well, one of the implications of that, verses 17 and 18, somebody might say, well, if all that matters is what I believe, then... Presumably, I can go and do what I like, I can live the life that I want, I can live to please myself. Or a modern version of that, which I've heard a few times, goes like this: God accepts me as I am, so therefore I don't need to change. And Paul's answer to that is absolutely not. That is, that is not what follows from an understanding of gospel by faith. So verses 17 and 18. Difficult verses to understand, so I'm going to borrow some words from somebody else, Tim Keller, who rephrases these verses as follows. If someone who knows they are justified by faith sins, is it because justification by faith in Christ promotes sin? Not at all. But if someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on with the same sinful lifestyle, rebuilding the sinfulness that Christ died to destroy the penalty for, making no effort to change, then it proves that this person never really grasped the gospel, but was just looking for an excuse to live in disobedience. Paul says it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that you could come to that conclusion if you really understand um, faith in Christ. We've um, had some golden tickets this morning, and wasn't it hugely impressive the way that some of those kids recited that verse? Um, I want you to imagine another ticket scenario this morning. I want you to imagine that you've got a relative that you've offended. Perhaps some of you don't need to imagine that, but just, just, just imagine there's a relative that you have offended And um, they live in London, money is no object, they're a millionaire. And one day, this relative sends you a ticket in the post. It's a ticket for a chartered train, a train chartered just for you. Apparently, these things do exist. Chartered just for you to travel up to London so that you can put things right. Well, would you get on that train and start trashing it? Well, of course you wouldn't. It's unthinkable. And that's the same kind of logic that Paul is wanting his readers to understand here. If you understand what God has given you, then you wouldn't just carry on living as you are. It would change everything. And this is where we get to in verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. So Paul had tried, he'd really tried to please God by keeping the law. But he proved to himself that he couldn't do it. He couldn't keep it perfectly. He could never fully keep the law. He couldn't make himself acceptable to God. And so he has stopped trusting in it as a means for salvation. He has died to the law. Everything has changed. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So not only is his relationship with the law finished, dead, but he is now united with Christ in a very special way. And just because that unity with Christ is invisible, it doesn't mean it's any less real. And the effects of that are this. What has happened to Christ has, in a spiritual way, happened to him. Christ has died. He is united with Christ. Therefore, he too, in a spiritual sense, has died. Christ has risen from the dead and is alive. He is united with Christ. Therefore, in a spiritual sense, he too is alive everything has changed everything has changed that is why this argument that if I believe in Christ then that's all that matters I can live you know live how I want it just doesn't make sense because everything has changed and that is why Paul is astonished that anyone should draw those conclusions from a true understanding of the gospel And that the Galatians are turning to this different gospel. Why are they turning to this different gospel? So what he's going to do now is present, broadly speaking, three arguments. Three arguments for the gospel that he is preaching as opposed to this alternative gospel that is being peddled by those who are coming from Jerusalem. And the first is an argument from logic. So verse 21 and the first verse of chapter 3. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that if we can make ourselves acceptable to God, if that was an option, then Christ's death was pointless. There's no way God would have sent his son to go through the agony he went through if we could sort ourselves out. Why would he do that? It's pointless. Christ didn't need to go to the cross if we can save ourselves. But he did go to the cross. Right at the very start of this letter, right back in chapter 1, some of the earliest verses. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So right at the start of the letter, Paul says, we need rescuing. And right at the start of the letter, Paul says, and that is why God sent his son, and that is why Jesus came, because we cannot rescue ourselves. And Paul says, how can you not see that? Verse 1, chapter 3, who has bewitched you? And I can't help thinking that if he was writing today, he'd say something like, who has hypnotised you? Because you're saying and doing all sorts of crazy things and you can't understand how nonsensical it is. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So in other words, there is no work left for you to do. The Christ I have portrayed is the crucified Christ. All the work that needed to be done has been done. There is nothing left to add to it. John Stott again, the law says do this, the gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey. The Gospel brings promises and bids us believe. So that's that's his first argument at this point an argument from logic if we could save ourselves then jesus didn't need to come but he did come then secondly we have an argument from experience so verse 2 first of all he asked them about their conversion experience did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard Go back to your conversion experience, you're saying. How did, how, did you come, how did you come to Christ? Was it by doing something? Or was it by believing in Christ? Answer, they became Christians by putting their faith in Christ. Not because of anything they did. So coming back to our train analogy, that ticket was a free gift from the relative. You did nothing to earn it. It came spontaneously through the post. It was a free gift. That's how it all began a generous gift. That was their conversion experience. Then their discipleship experience. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So they'd started their Christian walk by faith in Christ alone why would they now change and do something different? It's like you're on the train to London and then you get off at Barnum, lovely place Barnum, you get off at Barnum and you get yourself a taxi and you drive for the rest of the way. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? That's that's nonsense, that's bonkers. Why would you do that? Why are you starting with faith and now going on to works. That's bonkers. And then finally he asks them about their service experience. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you by your believing what you heard? So he's asked them to think about what's going on in the church in Galatia. So when, when people are miraculously healed through your prayers, is that because of the the, the good deeds that you've been doing? When someone has a spiritual message of insight, supernaturally revealed, is that because you've been a good person? Or is that just because of faith in Christ? If I can just come back to my little train analogy on one final time. So this, chain, this, this train has been chartered for you to get to London But not only has the journey been charted for, you discover when you step on the train all sorts of amazing things. There's fantastic food and it's free. There are all your favourite drinks and they're free. Not only that, but your relative has somehow managed to get on the train the people that you would most like to meet ever, as long as they're alive, obviously. And they're on the train and they're there on the train to talk to you if you want to talk to them or not, if you don't. It's, it's unimaginable. It's impossible to conceive. But that's, that's what the deal is. So is that all because you've done something to deserve that? Absolutely not. That's bonkers. How can, you, how can you think like that? Can you see what Paul is saying? He's getting them to reflect on their experience, coming to faith, growing in faith, serving Christ. And he's saying, just think about it. Your experience tells you that when God works, it's not because of what you do. It's purely because he is a gracious God. So we get Paul's summary question, although it's not the final question. It's in the middle, but it's a summary question. Have you experienced so much in vain? Has it all been a waste of time? If it really was a waste of time, that's his his argument from experience. We might do the same we might reflect on our own experience of God and ask ourselves, when we've encountered God, is it because we've been super, super good and have deserved it? Or has it been God reaching out to us graciously, showing us his favor? And then his final argument in this section, at least, is verses six to nine, it's an argument from scripture. He points to Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand and, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So he's saying, okay, you want to be children of Abraham, do you? Well, go back. Go back and read. Go back and read Genesis 15. Abraham believed God. That's how Abraham became acceptable to God. Abraham didn't become acceptable to God by doing good deeds, by keeping the law. It was by faith. That's how righteousness was credited to Abraham. The true children of Abraham aren't the people who follow the law of Moses. They are the people who exercise the faith that Abraham exercised. That's his first argument from Scripture. The second argument from Scripture is that salvation was never intended to be by works. He takes them a couple of chapters further back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. This is where there's a promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. And what Paul is arguing in effect is, just think about it. Was that promise on the basis of what Abraham did or was it just a free gift? He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So right at the very beginning, the blessing through Abraham to all the nations, which includes us, right from the the beginning, the intent was that that, that, that it would be by faith not by the works of the law. So, summary of where we've got to so far. We've got the gospel in a nutshell. What is the gospel? That we are made acceptable to God, we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. Paul counters an objection. The objection is, well, doesn't that mean that we can do what we want? Paul says, absolutely not. If that's what you think, you've totally misunderstood it. He says... Just think about it. Everything has changed. You're now united with Christ. Everything has changed. And then he makes three appeals to them. He appeals to their logic, he appeals to their experience, and he appeals to Scripture. Paul is working really hard to get his message across. That's what strikes me at this point. He is working really hard to get his message across. So the question that that begs for me is why is he doing this? Why is he spending so much precious time and precious parchment on this particular issue of whether his gospel is the real gospel? And I think it's because it affects our eternal destiny. That's the bottom line. If it was less important than that, I think he would have moved on by now and talked about other things but all the other ways that people imagine that they can win God's acceptance. Through pilgrimages, through prayers, charitable giving, martyrdom, burning incense, fasting, door-to-door visitation, punishing yourself, being a good neighbour, loving everyone to the best of your ability, memorising and meditating on sacred texts, performing great acts of service, and on and on and on. These good deeds, good deeds though they might be, and you can be top of the class, you can be top of the class in doing these good deeds, but they will not make you right with God. That is the message he's trying to hammer home. It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Unless you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're still guilty because you haven't fulfilled all of the law. So we need to pause for ourselves, I think, at this point, and just ask ourselves where we stand with regard to all this. Because if it's true that this really does affect our eternal destiny, then this is the most important decision we will ever have to make in our lives. So I ask you, if you haven't made it already, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you depending on something else? To get right with God if you haven't put your faith in Christ do it <laughs> do it do it now or at the very least come along to our Alpha course or talk to a friend don't put it off there is nothing more important than this decision to get right with God and put your faith in Christ but for those of us who have then everything has changed. We are in Christ, as Paul will say elsewhere uh, much more clearly, that we are free from condemnation. We are loved by God as if uh, the life we live is the life of Christ himself. We have a new identity. There's a well-known story told about Margaret Thatcher during the time when she was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So she was visiting an old people's old people's home going from patient to patient, talking to them. And she came up to one lady and she shook her hand and it was clear that this lady didn't recognize who she was shaking hands with. So Margaret Thatcher in her imperious voice, you can just imagine it, can't you? Do you know who I am? She said, and the lady replied, no dear. But I'd ask the nurse if I was you, she usually knows. (laughs) Do we know who we are? Do we know who we are? Paul says elsewhere that we're a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. Do we know that? Or are we still trusting, on, trusting in something else? And remember that Galatians is being written to Christians. So there's something here about people of faith starting off in a particular way and then changing direction. Timothy Keller, again, writes this. It's common for believers to... Oh, hello, I've got a bit of a display problem there, but never mind. It's common for believers to begin their Christian lives by looking beyond themselves at Christ, clearly crucified. Relying on God's promise that Christ has taken our curse and given us his blessing. But as we go on, it's tempting and easy to look within ourselves at our own human effort, Resting in our own performance to give us our sense of acceptability before God. Doing this makes us radically insecure. It cuts away our assurance and prompts us to despair or pride. What he's saying is that we can start one way and then somehow think that we need to do something different to keep going. But Paul says we must carry on as we began. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. So let me just remind you what we're talking about here. So the creator of the world left all the glory and the purity of heaven, the privilege to share the muck of human life. He only ever loved people, he only ever did good, he only ever taught well. But the religious leaders, insecure over their own position, had him arrested. A mock trial was staged. A sharp crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was hit repeatedly on the head with those thorns driving down into his temple. People spat on him. They whipped him, tearing shreds of flesh from his back. And then they asked him to carry the crossbeam of the cross, which would have rubbed against his shredded back. They get to the place of crucifixion and they hammer long nails through his hands and his feet, separating muscle, tendon, and bone in excruciating blows and then they hoist up the cross, which then drops into place with a heavy thunk, causing an unbearable wrench to his body. And there he hangs for hours and hours, gasping for breath in agony, his entire body racked with pain until he breathed his last. Jesus did that so that you could be acceptable to God. And Paul says, Do you really want to make your own contribution to that? Do you really think you can add to that? I want to finish with a story. Many years ago, Wasampa, a violent and hard drinking Mohican Indian, was telling his story of how he came to faith. He said, once a preacher came and began to explain to us that there was a God. We answered, do you think we're so ignorant as not to know that? Go back to the place you came from. Then again, another preacher came and began to teach us and to say, you must not steal or lie or get drunk, etc. We answered, you fool. Do you think we don't know that? Learn first yourself, and then teach the people that you belong to, to leave off these things. For who steal and lie who are more drunken than your own people? And we dismissed him. After some time, a brother Christian came into my hut and sat down by me. He spoke to me nearly as follows. I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven and earth. He sends word that he is willing to make you happy and to deliver you from the misery in which you now are. To this end, he became a man, gave his life as a ransom for man and shed his blood for him. And when he'd finished, he lay down on the floor, being tired from his journey and fell into a sound sleep. I then thought, what kind of man is this? there he lies and sleeps i might kill him and throw him into the woods and who would but this gives him no concern and then he says however i could not forget his words even while i slept i dreamed of that blood which christ had shed for us there is only one gospel there is only one version of the good news, that we are justified not by what we do, but by faith in Christ. And I'd like to suggest there's only one response, which is appropriate. To put your trust, whether it's for the first time or for the umpteenth time, in Christ alone. And to seek with God's help to please him, not to earn his favour, but out of gratitude for what Christ has done. Amen.